Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates hobby talk like you've never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, welcome everybody to episode number 164 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, December the 10th, 2022, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank Ken Richardson from Pastime Sports for joining us last week. Let everybody know, tomorrow, 7 p.m. Eastern on Collectible Live, our guest will be Bob Means. He is eBay's Director of Trading Cards. He'll be joining us 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow on Collectible Live. This coming Thursday, December the 15th at 6.30 p.m. Pacific will be the PWCC Premier Auction, Extended Auction Bidding Coverage. We'll be having a great time. Check that out. My co-host, Adam Gray, and we'll be joined by special guest, Karn Rye, for the second month in a row. And next Saturday on the show on Sports Cards Live, our guest will be, he's a passionate collector. He's the founder of Veriswap. Raymond Lee will be our guest. I would like to shout out the Center Stage app. You can download the app in the App Store for quick comps when you're at a card show or pricing your cards for sale on any platform. Their app is continuously improving, so please join me in supporting the great team they have there and the innovation that they are undertaking. Also, shout out to Leighton Sheldon and Just Collect. Leighton will be joining us a little bit later tonight for the Vintage Update segment. Also, remind everybody, Whatnot is back as a sponsor of Sports Cards Live. You can check out and download the Whatnot app in the App Store for auctions, group breaks, buy it now. It's hosted around the clock by some of the most entertaining group breakers and breakers in the hobby. I also want to thank the following fellow content creators for having me and inviting me onto their shows over the last week. First off, Tony and Oz from Cousins Collectibles. I had a great time with those guys Check out Cousins Collectibles on YouTube. They do great content, and I believe their last episode is the one where I was with them. Also want to thank Danny Black from Sports Balt. He's also one of the hosts on Hobby Hotline. Thanks, Danny, for having me on. I believe that that episode will be dropping very soon. We just recorded it a couple days ago. And finally, I'd like to thank Kelly and Jeff and the rest of the team from Sports Card Investor for having me on their virtual holiday event this past Tuesday. Had a great time with them, so thank you for that. And I'd like to thank all of our loyal viewers, listeners, subscribers of the channel, of the podcast. You know I appreciate you all. If you are not yet subscribed to the channel, please go ahead and do so. I also want to thank everybody who voted for the Sports Cards Live podcast on the Lucas Tigers and Bronze uh, Instagram annual awards for best podcast. Received a lot of votes. Thanks, everybody, for your support. As always, tonight, your comments, your questions are in play, so don't be shy. We have a great guest tonight. Let's get to it. She got her start in the hobby in middle school. She was collecting Sports Illustrated for kids' cards. Who can forget those? In 2019, she re-entered the hobby after going through her father's collection, and in 2020, she launched her company, Magpie. Her favorite teams are the Philadelphia Eagles, the New York Yankees, and the Magnificent Seven, the 1996 U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. Her favorite athletes are Mary Lou Retton, Serena Williams, and Don Mattingly. She's originally from New Jersey and currently hailing from Bozeman, Montana. Let's bring her out. Catherine Harrison, welcome to Sports Cards Live. How are you? Thank you, Jeremy. I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here. 
I feel like we've been talking about this for a long time. So I'm really excited for this conversation. We, we have been. We, we have been talking about it. And it's great to have you on. Uh, I've seen you many times over the past year. But I want to start off by just kind of discussing how do we know each other? Because I feel like I've known you for a long time. But when was it that we first actually met? Do you remember? So we first met at the Toronto Expo in November of 2021. You probably don't remember it because I cornered you and said, hi, I'm Catherine. I'm working on something new in the hobby. But then Sean Chalk, who is a prolific Gretzky collector um, and one of Magpie's advisors and just a fabulous friend, said to me, you need to meet Jeremy. And I said, well, like, I kind of met him already. And then he reconnected us. And I think we met in person again for the first time, maybe at Mint Collective. So I definitely remember seeing you at the Mint Collective. You were set up there with Magpie. You guys had a, had a booth. I'm sure I saw you at the, uh, the National. I saw you at the Toronto Expo again. So um, yeah, it's it's been you you seem like you're you seem like oh and the the Beckett Industry Summit of course just a couple months ago so you know from my perspective and for anybody who doesn't know Catherine I can tell you that if you kind of travel the the hobby circuit and you're at the shows and the events Catherine's at all these things with her team uh, talking about Magpie and what it is and we're gonna get that to that in a second but first I want to kind of get you to tell the story of your hobby your origin story is. As, as we fondly call them in the within hobby content, how you kind of got into it, what your earliest memories are. So we'll get to that. Actually, let's just get to that right now. What let's let's let you talk about sort of your history that led you to the two sports cars. I mentioned that you were you collected as a kid and then you found your father's collection, but maybe start with that. Yeah. What was what kind of your point of entry into this whole thing? Yeah, so I mean, I think if you go back to like middle school, Catherine, um, I was an athlete. I was a elite level gymnast, and then I broke my back and went into diving. I also played softball and basketball. In high school, I tried out for the water polo team, but I'm 5'2". I don't think I cleared five foot in high school. So sports has been a part of my life for a long time. Um, and I dove in college at Georgetown and maybe the saddest thing about being on the diving team at College of Georgetown is that I almost never got to go to Georgetown games because we always had swim meets at the same time. So obviously, I'm a huge Georgetown fan. And um, But after college, um, I was busy. I lived in Hong Kong for five years, um, just running around. And in 2019, my dad turned 80. And my dad has been a prolific collector of coins, of stamps, and of baseball cards, particularly the Brooklyn Dodgers from the 1952 to 1957 seasons. So, you know, I think that 80th birthday was a big milestone, understandably. And he was thinking, what if, I want to make sure that my collection lands in the hands of people that are going to love it as much as I do. And obviously he wanted to, you know, make some money on it as well. So um, my father actually lost his vision about 15 years ago. So he needed some help to go through everything that he had. And so I went home to New Jersey and was helping my parents go through different closets 
It's an experience that I think all of us have either with our parents or frankly ourselves when we move. And um, I, I had always heard about these cards and I'd always heard about the stamp collection, but I didn't, didn't really know much certainly at that point in time. And so I reached out to a number of dealers in the area. I called up pawn shops and consignment shops because I, you know, wasn't quite sure where to start. I spent a lot of time on eBay looking at what was out there. Um, but I think the most, like the best part of that experience was hearing the stories from my dad about um, the games that he used to go to with his dad, watching Sandy Koufax play. I mean, it was just that connection with my dad that I think was probably more valuable than anything else. And so um, that's really what got me back into the hobby. We were able to um, to sell his collection and place it with collectors that were really excited about some of his cards. So that was great. And I was in the midst of building a startup um, kind of outside of the hobby and realized that there was a huge opportunity here. And so from that, you know, bonding with my dad, learning all about his youth and childhood, I started to just see how, like, how incredible the hobby is and what a big opportunity there was. So that's how I've gotten back into this space. All right. Well, good. Hey, that's a pretty natural way to get back in. I'm sure you're not alone. A lot of people you know, inherit or or just assume their parents' collections. And if you're not in the hobby, you don't know what to, I think I think there's a a gap there as well. There's something out there to be said for the whole estate planning sort of concept and how that applies to like what are we all going to do, all of us collectors that have, you know, substantial collections, uh, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna leave them to our our, our spouses, our kids, whomever, and are they going to know what to do with them? I think that's a legitimate concern for everybody. You lived it firsthand, and now we're going to learn more about what Magpie is, but I, I think a, a component of what Magpie is is to maybe address that situation. Uh, before we continue, let's go to the chat and say hello. want to welcome everybody to the show tonight. We've got Jake Dahl, just got home from work, ready to watch another awesome episode. Good to have you, Jake. As always, perk in the house. Good evening to you. Darren Hogan, what's going on? Happy to have you. Chris C is here. Good evening. Triple V, happy holidays to everyone. Charlie Grisham in the house. What's going on? We have card porn in the house. How's the, I don't know, magpie. That <laughs> the skiing. I'm in Montana and we got uh, five inches of fresh snow yesterday. So it's amazing. Thank you. Uh, I'm not familiar with that emoji, but uh, welcome to the show, card porn. Collector's Dream is here. Hello to you. Silver Bull says, this is a cool one. There you go, Catherine. Silver Bull thinks you're cool. Great Thanks. stuff. Frank Estella is here as always. Good to see you, Frank. We got Sports MD and the Essential Credentials. Matt is here. Good evening to you and happy holidays to you as well. Oh, and Nick Martelli. Great content and info as always. Thanks for that, Nick. And uh, welcome to the show tonight. Here we are, December the 10th. We're coming up on the holiday season. Uh, it's a nice time of year, December. I, I enjoy December. Always do. Silver Bull, what's up? I think we said hi to you already. Okay. Let's keep on going, Catherine. So before we get into what Magpie really is, 
because I believe that it, it, that a lot of what Magpie is comes from, like you're an experienced business person. You've got experience in tech and startups. Why don't you tell us kind of what is your professional experience that really allowed you to identify the opportunities that you did in the hobby and then execute the execute on them as well? Absolutely. So as I said, I did my undergraduate at Georgetown, Hoya Saxa, and then I started working for an investment research firm out of undergrad doing legal and political research for investors. And I love traveling. And so I actually was part of the team that opened up this company's Hong Kong office. So I lived in Hong Kong uh, from the time I was 22 until I was 27, um, working with a, a an investment research company that was using technology to help investors make better decisions. And I built uh, an enterprise sales team all across Asia Pacific. So I was like 23 running around Japan, Korea, Australia, India. I mean, it was amazing. Um, got super into rugby sevens while I was there. I mean, it was just such an incredible experience. Um, I came back and went to business school at Wharton, which is in Philly and realized that I, I needed to understand technology. So I joined IBM. They have a really cool executive training program. Um, and I did some consulting. I actually got shipped off to Istanbul. I lived in Turkey for two years. That has some incredible stories. Got really interested in Bitcoin um, because I was working on payment modernization. Came back to the U.S., helped IBM build their blockchain product management team. And we worked a lot with open source. So what's really interesting in technology is that to get all of these different companies, computers, and systems to talk to each other, all of the biggest players have projects where they work on things that operate together. And so that's kind of the approach that we were taking. Um, I had an incredible experience at IBM, but I wanted to build a company that I um, that sort of went after things that I cared about, that I was passionate about. I wanted to hire the people that I wanted to work with. And so um, left uh, in 2019 and um, life is all about timing. My original startup idea um, was going along great. And then the pandemic happened and it became time to think about some other things because, you know, one of my engineers got hired away for, for by Google and, you know, funding didn't work in the same way. And with the pandemic, it was like, what's happening? So I always look for really interesting and fun opportunities. I love people's stories. Um, it's part of why I love your podcast, Jeremy, is hearing everyone's um, stories. And as I started thinking about what I was helping my dad do and looking at the hobby, I started to dig deeper and deeper and saw a, a pretty exciting opportunity. Awesome. I'm glad that's that's exactly the segue I wanted right there was that opportunity. So you said I saw an opportunity that that's something that I think is very vague and, you know, uh, almost abstract. What did you see? Can you can you really drill down into how did you identify this opportunity? What were the elements that were present that, and the, just the clues that you saw along the way that really made you realize there was an opportunity in the hobby uh, for, for you to do something? Absolutely. So first, as I started trying to figure out um, what to do with my dad's collection, I started looking at how big 
the interest and the passion and the market for sports cards, coins, stamps, and other types of collectibles. So if you look at sports cards, you're looking at a 10 to $15 billion market all by itself. When you start to add other categories like comic books, sneakers, coins, jewelry, and then add art, you're looking at a hundred billion plus market. These are assets that people just absolutely love. So anytime you look at a, a big market, that's, that's fun and exciting, right? Um, so that's the first thing. The second factor that I noticed was that because this has been seen as a hobby for, well, forever, but certainly for the last 25 years, there hadn't been a huge um, adoption of technology because people, this was what they did often for fun on the weekends. Yet you have some really big companies. I mean, think about the sports industry, think about art. Um, and it seemed to me, I also just realized how fragmented this industry was. Like when I started getting estimates for my dad's collection, I got prices that ranged tens of thousands of dollars. I could not believe that I couldn't get like a, a real clear answer on what this was worth. And I didn't know, was I being cheated? Was I naive? I had, you know, it was really hard to understand. So that opportunity to bring technology into a very large market um, was a second factor for me that was like, wow, it was a huge opportunity. The third thing, and I think this is what has really made me so excited and passionate about this space, is that for people like my dad, for collectors, this is not just a hobby. I feel like the hobby actually minimizes what collecting is for people. This is a way of being. This is how people create their legacy. They connect to moments in their childhood, in their um in their family, sports teams. And that kind of passion exists in so few places in life. And I wanted to be surrounded by people that just absolutely love what they're doing, what they collect, and they're building their lives kind of through this collection. So when you put those three together, it was like, how could I not jump into this, into this world? Oh, that's such a great story. It, it really is. You know, you said that we almost minimize what the hobby is as as collectors, as hobbyists. We and you know, it's it's well known now that that the sports card, the trading card world, we've claimed the word the word hobby for ourselves. No other hobby has the right to use that term. I kid, of course, but it's pretty funny how we've taken ownership of the term the hobby. And you're right, it is so much more than just collecting cards. As one of the lyrics in this in the song for Sports Cards Live is sports cards is a lifestyle. And I believe it it really is more than just a hobby or just something that we collect. If you're really into it, it does become a lifestyle, especially as time goes by. Let's go to a couple more comments here. There's a there's a, there's a lot there and there's some things that are going to help us uh, get into some other stuff as well. So first, James Wynn's been active. James, welcome. Says that your elevator speech is 100 percent. And and uh, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Collector's Dream thinks it's very impressive. Chad Blaise is in the house. Chad, always uh, always a pleasure to see you. So it's nice to see both of us. Uh, Darren says, it's quite the world perspective. Curious to know if you noticed how popular the hobby is in those places that you mentioned. Were you even thinking about the hobby back when you were in Hong Kong and traveling around? 
So I was, I would say I was thinking about the hobby or I was thinking about collecting, particularly around a couple of categories that are, that were of interest to me at the time. So handbags, um, contemporary art, particularly in China, there was an incredible um, growth in contemporary art. But you know what's interesting? That world experience has really helped me in my business at Magpie today because I've gotten to know hobby shops and collectors from 15 to 20 different countries because I've spent time there. I know a little bit about where they're from. And it just really helps to provide this like level of connection that I love. Right on. Very good. James says it's about 200 billion. I think you said 180. So let's just round up. Goes on to say that uh, the Mona Lisa itself is worth $20 billion. Uh, I like this comment from Darren. Can I tell my wife that you called the cards assets? And you're not alone in calling them that uh, for sure. Uh, Darren says, I'm loving this speech on collecting. It's so true. I have to agree. Junk Wax Investor. Yes, this is the best way to spend a Saturday night. Welcome to the show. And Chris C says, they're called trading cards, yet it seems we don't trade them as much as just buying them. A trading app that would pre-verify both sides of the transactions would be greatly beneficial. Pro collector idea. I'm having the founder of Veriswap on the show. You can see it on the screen right now, December 17th. That's what Veriswap is, Chris. So check out uh, Raymond Lee's uh, new company. And again, he'll be on with us on the 17th of December to meet him. He's a collector and to hear about what Veriswap is. And uh, Greg, what does Greg say? Uh, agree, Chris, bring the tech that can allow for a full database of all cards and variations, a way to update our own collection, no value, trade or sell or buy if we want and move shillers out. And I'm sure that touches on a bit of what, what Catherine's doing and maybe so does that automatic trading thing. I mentioned Veriswap because uh, Raymond's coming on too. Are you familiar with that, uh, with Veriswap, Catherine? Yeah, I met Raymond, I think at the National and maybe at a Bleaker trading night. Yeah, cool. All right. So, uh, all right, let's keep on, let's keep on going here. Um, James Wynn mentioned your elevator pitch and I want to come back to that for a second because I'll tell a short story here. So Catherine and I were both attending the Beckett industry summit. That was in, that was in, uh, the very end, the very beginning of October of this year. And one of the, one of the components of the, of the, the industry summit is, I think it was Monday morning, Monday or Tuesday morning, 8 a.m. in the big kind of convention hall where there's a bunch, you know, 500 tables and chairs set up. They had a session of elevator speeches. Any company who was set up at the industry summit was able to get up on the stage and address the whole room, which was packed, like standing room only, literally, and give a quick elevator pitch on what your company does. So there were about 14 or 15 of them, I think, Catherine and I would yeah. say that you were probably like the the you were about the tenth or eleventh person to go, I, if I remember correctly. And then I went up. I represented tag grading, and I went up about one or two people after you. But everyone who went up before you kind of stood at the podium and just gave their their pitch about about a minute long, and you know just a very a very uh, simple pitch. Let's just put it that way. And then Catherine gets up on the stage, grabs that mic pushes the podium aside and walks around and gives a very energized uh, speech or elevator pitch, if you will. You received a round of applause at the end of your of your pitch. I don't think anyone else before you did. And uh, I, I thought, and I was standing there kind of waiting to go up and I was watching thinking she's doing a great job. You know, she's commanding the attention of the audience. So 
you know, uh, from what you just told me, I can't personally say, you know, you're you're a smart tech person, or you're a great entrepreneur. I don't have that insight. I'm sure you are, but I can definitely say that you are a great public speaker. And uh, and from talking to people on your team, I believe I can also say you're a great a great leader and uh, kind of a creator of a culture within a company. So all good stuff right there. Okay, I see that we do have Leighton who's joined us in the background. So we'll have him on for our weekly vintage update in just, just a minute. Um, Catherine, before we do that, I did want to, you know, we do have to get into what Magpie is itself because we're yeah. talking kind of all around it right now. Um, you know what, that might, that's going to take some, let's bring out Leighton. I know, you know, Leighton, let's bring out Leighton here. Mm-hmm. What he's going to talk about in terms of vintage, I, you know, I'm a big vintage collector. I've been collecting vintage my whole life. I think about my first vintage card from Joe Daly sports cards in Winnipeg and probably 1988 or 89, a Bobby Hull rookie card from 1958. I, I can't say I still have it to this day. I have one, but not that one. Um, okay. Very quickly. Uh, JP does say, uh, will there be an after hours today? JP, not yet. Don't know, but maybe you never know. Nothing planned at this point. Junk wax, Jordan. It's Saturday night, Lee beer and hockey. And someone please let me know what happened at the end of the Calgary Flames Toronto Maple Leafs game. Flames are my team, and I'd like to know how they were 4-4 last I checked. Okay, Catherine, let's bring out our friend Leighton Sheldon from Just Collect Vintage Update. Leighton, how are you today? How was your week? Um, great, thanks. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Doing good. well. Good. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you as well, Catherine. How are you? Doing very well. I love it. I love it, Leighton, when you know our guest for the night. And I think so far we're five for five. You seem to know all the so. guests that we have. So, uh, so Leighton's coming on for anyone who's not, who's kind of just joining for the first time in a while. Uh, Leighton is coming on uh, every week and just giving us a, an update on vintage, what he's seeing in the marketplace and kind of keeping the vintage spark alive. So Leighton, let's hear what's your, uh, what's your topic for today? Sure. So today's interesting because I had the good fortune of um, meeting someone with a fresh collection uh, this morning. And if you haven't looked at your calendar, today's Saturday. So I'm usually meeting people on Saturday. I'm either spending time with my son, I'm going to a convention or playing tennis or something of that nature, but it was easier for this individual to meet on a Saturday morning. And so normally, you know, we might talk about collections on here, but we're not much, you know, into, you know, doing a show and tell. However, because I was able to secure this collection in Hoboken today, um, I thought before I showed off a few of the cards I got from the collection, it'd be fun to show off some of the highlights, but also talk about, because we've had, uh, we've been very grateful recently. We've, we've bought some great collections. And I feel like there's this notion out there, and this is my first topic for today, that the only people who can buy fresh vintage card collections are folks who, like, are me that do it full time, um, or the only other place to get you know, fresh vintage collections are out of auction houses. And so I've talked about this a little bit, you know, at various times on a variety of different, you know, podcasts. And so what I'm trying to do, Jeremy, today is to enable people and to give them hope that if you also want to find fresh vintage card collections, you can, but just like anything else in life, you've got to put the work in to get the results that you want. And so make no mistake, I'm very proud of what I'm going to show you in a few minutes, but it didn't happen by luck. It happened because we give a lot of great advice on our website for free at justcollect.com. And what I mean by advice is we're giving people information 
that either may be vintage card experts, maybe they're novices, or maybe they're in between, but we never assume. So we try to give out as much good information about vintage cards as we can. And in turn, what's happened is it's created a dialogue for us with people in the hobby, with people outside the hobby, with people out outside the hobby, meaning their little old grandma Gertrude, you know, uh, she didn't realize, but she inherited something that was great when she was younger and she held it for 87 years. You know, we may not get it the first time. We may not get it at all, but we believe in giving people information that are going to help them. And so that's what I wanted to basically um, hone in on today is wherever you live, if you live in a town of 77 people, if you live in a town of 7,777 people or much bigger, Make sure when you go to the bagel shop, your coffee shop, the supermarket, you don't have to be walking around with a shirt that says, I buy baseball cards or a tattoo on your head. I don't do that, but I'm very outgoing the way that Catherine was on the stage when you described me and enjoyed that story. I'm sorry I missed that speech. Um, but the point is, is that if you go out there and you're friendly and you're providing information, you're providing value to people, it's not going to be a guarantee that you're going to get vintage collections, but what's going to happen is you are going to start to create a dialogue. And then within your community, whether it be hobby, your actual community where you live, or maybe just socially, like you join the library club, but all of a sudden, you know, you're noticing that people are, are bringing uh, questions to the group about, hey, you know, I have an old book. Hey, does anyone have any old cards? And believe it or not, not this collection, but another collection, which I don't have the cards here to show off today, but was very special. I showed it off on Instagram a few days ago, was a collection of baseball photographs um, called, excuse me, baseball photographic postcards called PC-796s, and they're from 1910. Really, really tough issue to find. Um, and uh, there's only 25 cards in the set. This is a massive find because PSA is only graded 53 of them, and we found 20 of them in one group, which is, you know, which is incredible. Um, and so, you know, the point being is that the stuff is out there. You got to do the work. And in this case, believe it or not, this collection came to us because someone else recently had sold us a collection Swear to God, they were at Thanksgiving. And this, by the way, is really cool. This part of the story will be in our video because these folks came to our office. And so we interviewed them and we're starting to do more of that as far as content. I mean, the folks who originally owned it, um, you know, what's the story in their own eyes behind it? And so um, ultimately, it was a real treat uh, to have them share with us um, a little bit of the history of the collection. But believe it or not, they were at Thanksgiving. And I don't want to get it wrong if it was like a cousin or something of that nature, but it was a family member and they're around each other for the holidays. And somehow the discussion turns to sports. And then this other um, fella who had sold us the cards recently said, hey, you know, I just got a check for, I'm making it up $7,000. And, uh, you know, I sold some baseball cards. And these folks were like, what do you mean you got $7,000 selling some baseball cards? They're like, well, you know, blah, blah, I did this and that. And they're like, we have some cards from 1910 I'd love to find more uh, about them. And like, well, you know, contact late and just collect. He'd be a great resource. Maybe he'll be interested. Maybe he can help you find out what they had. And lo and behold, we were most definitely interested. Yeah. Um, let, let me and, jump in. I have two yeah, comments, Clayton. I sure. just I got to jump in before I, before I, I forget. I won't because I wrote them down. Um, you know, you said that you were talking about, you know, you don't need to wear a shirt that says I, I buy baseball cards or I deal in baseball cards or vintage baseball cards, and you were really speaking to vintage, but I think it's important to point out that that applies to modern as well. If you're in this hobby, and you know, I mean, I I was at the local monthly today and I was talking to a guy and I said, Hey, I remember seeing you here last month or last month, you showed me a card 
And I saw it on eBay like four hours later. He looks at me, he goes, yeah, you know, it's like the self-sustaining hobby. I want the hobby to self-sustain. Fine, no, no problem with that. But it makes me think that, you know, if you want to approach the hobby in that way where you, you are a collector, but you want to do some buying and selling to help subsidize the, the expense of outlaying cash to add cards to your collection, it's important to, in your community, just amongst your friends, your colleagues, your whatever, from school, work, whomever, to let don't don't be embarrassed about collecting cards anymore like a lot of us were for a long time you know let people know because the referrals will come to you when people do want either advice on what they have or they want to sell and if people want to sell i want to be someone that they're going to call because i want a chance to buy Catherine, what, what do you want to jump in with well and so this actually goes to what we were talking about a bit earlier there are 74 trillion dollars worth of assets that are going from baby boomers to millennials and gen z and that's just traditional assets that's stocks that's bonds that's cash nobody has sized or even thought of all of the stuff that's getting passed down and this is something that many people don't necessarily know and look there's some beautiful examples that's of what, stuff. yeah of of, of stuff right that can be absolutely incredible so and thanks Catherine and the second point I wanted to make Leighton was that you know you talked about the family telling you the story about the cards or the items or the collection and why that I think is so important especially for the person who's purchasing it who's going to put it on the market is you're really building up the provenance and this not just who owned it but where did they get it from? And, you know, was it was it the grandfather, the great grandfather who had these cards from the 50s or the 1910s? If we're talking, you know, tobacco cards, that's really cool information for someone like you to have when you're putting them on display at a card show or on your website. And you have this. I mean, people want a story. I think at least I do. I shouldn't project like that. But for me, a card is so much more interesting if it comes with a story. Somebody I know on Instagram recently put up a card it was uh i think it was i think it was nate in cardboard veritas put up the 49 uh bowman jackie robinson not you know not not a super strong grade a very presentable psa 2.5 and i thought you know what that's a nice card i would like to i don't have that card i'd like to own one and even better that it comes from his collection like that's something where you know uh catherine have you come across that sort of narrative or that sort of kind of uh, situation in assessing and we still haven't gotten into a magpie as we're going to as soon as Leighton leaves but have you come across that sort of a situation in particular absolutely we work with a number of athletes and when it comes directly from the athlete that is incredibly important so I think that there are lots of stories um, we have a woman who her husband has a series of autographed baseballs he brought to their marriage when they got married in 1952. So, and they are balls that he had collected as a child. So when you start to have those stories, not only does it bring out, you know, baseballs, cards, et cetera, that the market has never seen, but then it just has such a cool emotional connection. Right on, right on. All right, Leighton, you have anything sort of to wrap up uh, tonight's vintage update segment, or do you want to show a few cards? Yeah, I'm just going to do a reveal and then do a special shout out to our friend Andy Friedman, uh, who had his trade night last night with us. I was, um, and, I, and I meant to ask you how that went, because I believe you kind of 
met him on the show here a few weeks ago and then managed to arrange uh, him to come and do a trade night with you, which I thought was so cool. Was it fun? Did you have a, a good time? We had a great time, and this was interesting. And then I'll show these cars and let Catherine uh, kind of start telling the community about her great company because um, I could talk all night, as you know, Jeremy. Uh, and so um, it was interesting. There was a point in which it slowed down a little bit in the store, and Andy and I were just kind of chatting it up uh, in our offices. And I don't know, something struck me as I'm like, you know what, Andy, do you want to hop on air with me? Because at the same time, in our offices at Just Collected, Milburn, New Jersey, we run our other company, Vintage Breaks, out of the same offices. And so we have a studio there, and we were live, and we probably had 30 or 40 people watching. And so I asked Andy if he wanted to join. I didn't know if he was camera shy or what the scoop was. Turns out he's not. He's a big ham. Um, and so uh, we had a great time talking about uh, who he is, what he does with his work. And then the icing on the cake was we opened with him a few of his Andy Friedman Tops collab boxes. Wow. And so he was talking with the audience about how he selected that subject, what it meant to him. And it really, like... It turned out to be incredibly interesting when really I thought we were just going to end up eating pizza and drinking beers the rest of the night. So it worked out great. Um, and uh, we had a lot of fun. The community really enjoyed it. Uh, and so, like I said, big thank you to Andy Friedman. Um, and lastly, I just want to show uh, a couple of the cards. So we bought a 1950s collection today in Hoboken, New Jersey. Turns out this individual came from New York City to meet me in Hoboken. Um, and uh, the collection is primarily baseball, a couple football cards. Uh, I'll show you the couple football first. These are just highlights. So YA Tittle rookie, as you can see there, the toe, Lou Groves in 1950 Bowman, uh, and then a pair of Tom Landry rookies. Um, and, you know, there's hundreds of 51 Bowman football cards. But the real prize was the baseball. Uh, and so, like I said, we won't go through every card, but you can but see here a couple of nice 51 Bowmans. There's a oh, fresh, to the hobby, fresh to the hobby 1951 Bowman oh. Nicky Manor rookie, fresh Beautiful. to the hobby 1951 Bowman Willie Mays rookie, and then, oh, this is a really nice second year, 1952 Bowman Mickey Mantle. Uh, and then this I wanted to show. Oh, uh, you know I love that card. Maze. And then one of my favorite sets ever, the 1953 Bowman Color. There's a really nice group of these cards. Um, and, you know, lots more, but I just thought it'd be fun to show. I mean, I haven't showed anyone else. I didn't put an Instagram. So this is truly the first reveal and look at this collection. Well, I got to say, I mean, first of all, I wasn't sure what to expect with that little show and tell there, but uh, you, those are some of uh, the 53 tops. Willie Mays is my favorite. I think it's my favorite. I don't own one. I never have. But as far as the pure aesthetics of the image, the painting, it is like the most beautiful card I think I've ever laid eyes on. I, I absolutely love like this. This I just love that image of him. I, I don't know what it is. I love this. It. Jeremy sounds like leverage to me. In our relationship, based on what you just described, in terms of you haven't had one, this is fresh to the hobby. Jeremy, when you get a chance, you know, send me a list of like your best cards. I'm kind of curious what you got. <laughs> All right, Leighton. Well, hey, man, listen, uh, thanks for coming on. Appreciate the stories and the context and everything. And uh, good to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Catherine, if I don't talk to you, happy holidays. Jeremy, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Leighton. Take care. Great to All see right. you. All right, so Catherine, we're gonna. We, unless you want to say anything before we go to comments, there's a lot going on. Anything first? No, let's jump in. I mean, right. that segues very well, but let's talk about comments first. All right, so uh, thank you for letting me know that my my Calgary Flames lost in overnight overtime tonight, but we'll take the one point. Darren says it sounds like there's going to be an after hours. <laughs> you never know. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Jeff McMahon. 
Junk Wax says, you don't want to know about the game. Let's not ruin the mood. I love it. That's great. Thanks for that. Uh, Collector's Dream loves the vintage update. Yeah, Leighton has great information. Thanks, Blaz. Appreciate that. Joe Perot, what's going on? Card Porn says the late Leighton, the CSG8 Mantle is currently at 949K. Is it worth it? And sorry, we don't really do question and answers when Leighton's on, but appreciate that. Darren says, any genres for vintage that are growing faster than what might be expected of late? That's a great question. Maybe we'll save that one for next time. Darren says uh, something about Pete Rose collecting. Yeah, that'd be nice to hear. Uh, what else we got here? I'm not sure how to say this name, but it says, Catherine, have you noticed an uptick in collecting things due to bad publicity or trending topics such as people wanting Brittany Griner, WNBA cards, or people wanting to collect... Balenciaga apparel before they removed from circulation. Um, I, I'm not really seeing anything there myself. Uh, Catherine, have you got, do you have eyes on this sort of stuff? I mean, I think in the classic uh, mantra that all publicity is good publicity, right? I do think that we've seen upticks in a number of different categories as there has been controversy or big kind of news events. So um, I think that 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 just widens the lens of people that are interested in those items for sure. Cool. Cool. Junk wax says that the story can be more valuable than the card itself. I think there's some, definitely some truth to that. Uh, AIH welcome to the show. Good to see you. I see lots of chatter going on. Chris says, I think we all want honesty and transparency, but without regulation, we need to self-regulate and have checks and balances. I think that's a great point. Uh, C. Blaise says, more stories need to be told when selling the card, I believe, especially on the higher end ones. I agree. They will do better on the market if people not in the industry know more about it. I think that's true. I think the problem, though, is that many cards don't have very interesting histories, or they do, but they're completely unknown and we will never know. I always, Catherine, I'll look at a card that I have, you know, from that could be 120 years old, let's say 100 years old, and... I, I'm curious, whose hands did this travel through over 100 years? This, these cards have stories that, unfortunately, they're just they're lost forever in many cases. But when they are not, I think that is really cool. Anything to kind of say to that? I mean, that's a big part of what we do at Magpie is help people capture some of those stories and that history and create that chain of Jeremy owned it, then Leighton owned it, then whoever owned it, et cetera. Yeah, so much, so cool to know who owned cards before you, especially if it's, you know, somebody of, of consequence, I guess, would, would be a way to say it. Uh, baseball card curmudgeon is here. What's up with you? Great to see you. Chris says the stories can be great and can tell the journey of a card for decades if it's vintage. Yeah, what I was just saying, the stories are great, but so many of them are just lost, right? Like, unfortunately, Colin Murray loves buying vintage collection. Modern, not so much. Lots of lots of garbage. Fair. I mean, yeah, I, I can't really can't really argue with that. Definitely, Seablaz, you like the yeah the, those cards that he showed. I mean, I saw the fifty-one Bowman mantle in the maze, and and then he just kept on going for sure. Yeah, some blue chippers for sure. What a find! Definitely, Matt Pime. Welcome, says Catherine. Where do you see consolidation happening in the sports card sector? I'm going to open this one up to you. Sure. So I think that this is a, we've seen a lot of companies come in with lots of ideas, which is amazing. There's been some great venture investment that's come in, people who've taken side hustles and turned them into full-time um, products, companies, et cetera. 
Uh, that said, as the market has gone down, I think we're going to see consolidation in a few spaces. Obviously, we've already seen considerable consolidation in the manufacturing side, um, and I think it'll be interesting to continue to watch what happens there. I think on the grading side, I think we're seeing some awesome innovation um, that's happening. I do think we'll start to see more consolidation as we have, you know, we sort of return to more normalcy around the graders. And I think there'll be some interesting M&A activity. I think there'll be some partnerships, which we're already seeing. Um, we're, I think there's also a lot in the kind of inventory management technology platforms. I think we're going to see a bunch of players come and go as, um, as the space, you know, matures and you start to see um, some technologies working better than others. Um, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity there as well. So. Right on. Thanks, Matt Pime. Nick Martelli, I think a deal might be done between Jeremy and Leighton after hours. Well, I did. That was a fine looking 53 tops Willie Mays. I yeah, I've been I've been really wanting one of those for a while. Filmington has joined us. What's up, Phil? Great to see you. As always, and Darren says, spent countless hours in the attic at my grandparents back in the day looking for my dad's old collection. No mantles, no maze, nothing. Just some trashy Lincoln logs. So funny, but isn't that isn't that the truth? Like, you always wonder when we hear about these finds, like, why, like, why didn't I, why can't I find something like that? Like, you have to be so lucky to find something or even to have a grandparent that collected the right things at the right time. So many people were collecting in the... How, how often does anyone watching myself, and it happens so often, people say, hey, I got this collection. Can you let me know what you think? And it ends up being junk wax era stuff. It's like, uh, you know, or, or it's just 70s and 80s commons and the odd decent card. So I hear you there, Darren, for sure. Okay, Catherine, let's get back to Magpie because you are obviously in tune with the hobby. You, you understand the hobby because, listen, you came in, but you've, like I said earlier, if you're if you're on the the hobby circuit, you see Catherine at, at all the events, and you're you're just such an outgoing and friendly person. You talk to everybody. You've got a great you know your your social media after events. You're taking pictures with everybody and just having a having a great time. So I think because of that, you've really sort of absorbed the hobby, and you're a great listener. You know, and you, you're absorb you're, you are absorbing everything. So let's talk about you know you you found you were dealing with your father's collection. You saw the opportunity to do something. What is the opportunity that Magpie is addressing? Um, first off, thank you for that compliment. I really appreciate it. Um, Magpie is building an operating system for collecting. All of the information about collecting is fragmented, as we've talked about, across tens of thousands of websites and listings and Facebook groups and Instagram and TikTok and you know, and, and if you think country by country, there's its own dynamic there. And this is one of those things where there is a core um, of information that people need to be able to share. And so I've taken the work that the experience that I have building open source software and really starting to build those types of integrations so that everyone in the hobby can better understand what are, what are the cards, where do they exist? Where are they sold? What's the history? What is the provenance? And so that's kind of the technology layer, but that comes to pass in two sort of main um, ways. So first is our white glove service, and that's where we started. 
Um, and the, the comments from Leighton were, were, were fun because this is what we do at Magpie all the time. So we will go to a collector's house, office, storage unit, and we will photograph and catalog inventory so that they can understand every single thing that they have. Very often they start with cards, but as we talked about before, most collectors collect many different things, game used jerseys, other types of memorabilia, watches, books, wine. And so we help them understand all of what they have and help them make better decisions about what to do with it. So that could be insurance, that could be their estate planning and their will, um, that could be selling it at auction. And it's actually awesome because I can talk a little bit. Normally, these are very confidential. People you know, don't share what they're doing. But um, in the last couple of months, we've helped a couple of separate different collectors take their goods to auction. So um, Card Porn mentioned that we've helped them with their autograph collection, which is so cool because um, some of the stories around the pieces in that collection are amazing. There's, um, and I'm a huge Beatles fan. Like from the time I was probably seven or eight, I was stealing my mom's CDs. I think the Beatles anthology was coming out. So in this collection, there is um, a program from a concert that's signed by every member of the Beatles. And this program, this, these autographs came from a member of one of the bands that was touring with the Beatles. Like, it, it was it, it ended up with the ex-wife of I think it's the drummer or the guitarist. I'm gonna get the story wrong. Um, but she had it and then ultimately sold it. Um, and card porn was so excited about putting together just the most like the best of the best autographs. And so for me, like that story is so cool. You've got incredible provenance. And that collection has so many amazing athletes, musicians, artists, political figures. Um, just to show you what a nerd I am, like Nelson Mandela's book, Long Walk to Freedom, used to be one of my favorites. And there's an autographed copy of that. I mean, just so cool. And so we got to go in and photograph it, inventory and help them figure out what to do and, and ultimately to sell it. So that was so, so, so cool. Um, and, you know, I mentioned there's a woman uh, who has all these baseballs that her husband collected as a child. Um, we helped a different collector. Um, if you look, there's a golden, the golden December auction has two Banksy's. So we actually also helped with that. So one of the most, I mean, and how incredible to see and be able to be close up to a, some really, really interesting Banksy works. So that's one big part of our business. And that's really where we started. That came out of um, my personal experience with my dad. Um, but to your point about like listening and talking to people, um, as I got to know people in the hobby, and I have to say, everyone is wonderful. Um, you know, I have to think about like Sharon at Black Jaded Wolf, who just um, at Culture Collision in Atlanta took me under her wing, spent four or five hours getting to know me. I sat, I had dinner with her and her partner, Siobhan. I mean, it was just amazing. 
And I started, you know, I had seen the challenges with dealers as I was helping my dad and, and talking to dealers. I started, you know, asking, how do you manage inventory? How do you price and reprice all of your cards given, you know, every week you've got games, you've got athletes that are injured, that perform well, that get themselves arrested. Like, how do you manage all of that? Um, and started to realize that there was a huge need to make running these businesses far more efficient. And so we help collectors, but we also help dealers really run um, the back end operations and help with inventory pricing and then ultimately customer relationship management so that they can make sure that Jeremy gets his Willie Mays card or Catherine gets the, the Danica Patrick card that she's looking for, et cetera. So that's Magpie. So is it, I'm hearing a bunch of things. I'm hearing point of sale. I'm also hearing like a Salesforce type of application custom for the hobby where you can actually have the, you know, this customer management. And is that, does, does that kind of make sense too? A hundred percent. So what we've done is simplify. There's lots of tools that exist in the world to do some of these things, but None of them are designed for the complexity of both the inventory as well as the complexity of pricing for um, for the hobby. And so that's that's the big problem we're solving is basically tying that inventory management to customer relationship management so that dealers can spend less time on data entry and all of the painful management issues and more time connecting with their communities and, and growing growing their businesses. So what about the what about the card show dealer, the person who doesn't have a store and has a has a job or career outside the hobby, but you know they 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 do whatever, two to or one to five or six shows a year and before every show, you know if they've got a thousand cards or even a hundred, it's going to take time to go out and reprice and put a new price tag on each card. Does your does Magpie address that? challenge for card show vendors? It's a great question. So um, we do, and we see that as part of the, the market. We've done a pilot with about 20 different um, card dealers that you know participate generally, as you said, as a side hustle. Um, and what we realized is that in order to make their lives really value, really helpful, we needed to be working with the biggest players in the business so that we would have all of the inventory, all of the pricing. So right now we're working largely with brick and mortar retailers uh, because they have just a level of scale that is, you know, is, is huge. And we have learned so much working with some of the, the, the weekend card dealers um, and, and Jeremy, thank you for participating in our pilot. That was, we've learned so much from you and from others. And we realized some of the steps that we needed to take in order to make it onboarding super easy, very easy to price. So that's part of our plan. And we'll be launching those tools for card show sellers um, later in 2023. All right, pretty cool stuff. Okay, let's go to a couple comments here. Uh, Chris C, my first wax, pa wax packs as an 11 year old was 1987 tops with Nolan Ryan inside, but that started an obsession of following his career and finally acquiring his rookie cards, his rookie card many years after. I think it's pretty cool how buying a, or, or getting a card of somebody can actually kind of cause you to then follow their career. That's pretty cool. 
on that, the only Sports Illustrated for kids that I found at my parents' house is the one that had Nolan Ryan on the cover. I don't know if you remember that, but yeah, it's one of my favorites. Right on. C. Blaise says, I spoke to Catherine at the Industry Summit this year and will 100% agree with Jeremy. She's very friendly, welcoming, and easy to talk to. Uh, Volkaka says, is Aaron Judge good to collect? C. Blaise answers for everybody. If you like him, then yes. Uh, here's a uh, here's a question for you, Catherine. Uh, do you see the do you see hobbyists embracing blockchain and collecting these same cards items as digital assets? Such a great question. So the short answer is yes, but um, I don't think you actually care what the technology is behind what you're collecting. I think what you care about is who is the player, the sport, the moment that it um, that it captures? What is the emotion that it creates in you? So I think that we are all going to live in a world where we live both in the physical world and then we're part of lots of different digital worlds. You all people already play Fortnite or you know or others, and they have avatars and skins. And I think collectors, in some ways, are the best audience for everything that's happening with nfts digital assets etc because we we already have that like bone that's like i want something that's rare that's beautiful that's interesting and ultimately like nfts digital assets they're not that different from from physical assets they're just a different way of experiencing them so like i think there's always going to be incredible cards or baseballs or jerseys or art that we experience in the real physical world. And I think we're just going to add to our collections um, with digital things as we start to live more and more in kind of digital worlds. So, you know, you said something there that really triggered my brain to think in a way that I've never thought before in this world of of digital assets and NFTs kind of uh, infiltrating the sports card narrative and community and just the, you know, everything that we're talking about and hearing and reading about. And you said that, I don't think that, I don't think the technology behind it matters. And I've never thought of that. that that's a really insightful comment that at the end of the day, do you really care what the underlying technology is? And maybe you do. May, listen, I, I don't know if the answer to that is we should be because some technology is, is going to be more secure than others and, and those sorts of those sorts of things but um that, that was a really interesting comment that i that i, I heard you say okay uh ranchi says integration is very important and i do believe that it would take our hobby to levels never seen before by i think you know we were talking about consolidation i think cooperation is another good way to to say it you know there, there are all sorts of different ways that uh companies in the space could work to like a, like a, a universal population report. As an example, there are ways that the hobby could, could cooperate to make it better for the hobbyists themselves. We have Ecuador in the house. Computuning IT support says, uh, my question is, are the big companies doing something to take the hobby to new places? Because Ecuador can be a new and good market. Collectors have a hard time without support. I mean, it's a two-part question. Number one, are the, are the big companies doing something? I think some are. I think some are doing things. We don't know what they are yet. I don't know how we get into Ecuador. I, I'm just not sure. I don't know Ecuador but very well at all. I, I, I've heard of it. I don't know Ecuador. Catherine, do you have something to say to this? I have so many thoughts on this, 100%. So I think that the big companies have been like far too U.S.-centric in the last 20 years. I mean, 
when you when you meet like it's been very much around the US sports market. And I think that there is a, rec a recognition of just how much bigger this market is, particularly when you move outside of like the American for professional sports and you add soccer, you add F1, you add, you know, a whole host of other of other spaces. So I think that I think that there is and I think you've seen success of some major international card shops. So for example, um, Grayson from Cherry Collectibles won two or three different awards at the Beckett Industry Summit. I think he won kind of the Hall of Fame and Best International Card Shop. I think we I think the hobby is starting to see, especially now, you know, during the pandemic when everything was happening digitally, it became that much easier to connect to the hobby shop in Melbourne or in Greece or in Germany. So I think that that's happening. I think you also see a number of the large dealers and card shops that see opportunity across the planet. So I know Roadshow has done some breaking and has done some pop-ups in Colombia. So not so far from Ecuador. I think there are a lot of different, I've heard of a lot of different projects of card shops in the Middle East, in Europe, and there's already huge established um, card shops and dealers in Korea, in China, in Japan. So I think that this is um, a really undervalued or an under um, maximized part of the hobby. And I think particularly as Fanatics comes in, they have huge goals and objectives and they need to grow the market size of the hobby considerably. International is one of the easiest untapped markets to go after. Yeah, I, well said. Soccer being such a big big part of that for sure we have danny black in the house what's going on danny from sports balt and hobby hotline chris c says the prices of cards in my opinion can't be just comps it's too narrow-minded and limiting if one person sells a card for a fraction of what it's really worth you know agree or am i just off base chris i think you are not off base at all i do definitely agree with that you know i'll tell short story here there's a card that I saw at the week at the monthly local card show here a month ago. There were no available sort of comps on the common marketplaces. And the guy wanted an, an amount that I thought was too much, more than I was willing to pay. I wanted to pay like $120 to $140. Between that month and this month, there's now a comp on this card. The card's numbered out of 15. It's a it's a Martin Brodeur SP game use, Supreme patch, three-color patch, nice piece. Anyway. One sold for like $114 just the other day. So I went to the show today and I said, hey, hey, Rick, um, remember that card I asked you about last month? Well, look, one just sold. It's basically the same card. It sold for $115. Would you sell yours to me for around there? And he said, nah. He said, nah, you know what? It's I think it's worth more than that. And it's I only have three Brodeur cards. So I think I'm just going to keep it. I like the card. Now, my response was, that is more than fair. Like, who am I to tell you that I, I have my I have my phone in my hand with an eBay comp that says $115. You have to sell me that for $115. Absolutely not. Just because there are comps out there doesn't mean that the owner of the card values it the same way that those the highest bidder did and the and the and the underbidders did a week ago from some other city, maybe in, in another country. So comps are very informative and maybe guiding, but they are certainly not the end-all be-all. Catherine. I have so much to say about this. So what's fascinating <laughs> that. is that 
you know, ev everybody wants to say, and everyone's building the stock market of cards. Okay. But cards are not companies with free cash flows where you can project what their performance is going to be. They are ties to players, to teams, to moments in history. And so their value is much more tied to obviously how is that player and that team performing? And then what is the community of people around that um, player, team, moment, et cetera, that care and that are aware of it and that want it? And so we provide Magpie as part of the platform that we provide is we provide comps at scale for, for dealers. Let me tell you, dealers change probably 90% of the prices. They use the comp to inform the, 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 the listing price that they're going to set it at. But they know their community. They know their geography. They know how prices work for them in the store when they're not being sold in eBay with risk and shipping and all these types of things. So I think that comps are, as, as Jeremy so clearly said, like, a great data point to help you make a decision. But if you absolutely have to have a certain card, a certain player, a certain asset, your willingness to pay is going to be very different than someone else. And that is part of the fun of collecting, right? It's figuring out what is the gift to get? How do you locate that grail? What's the hunt? And then how do you bring it in? So yeah, it's it's exactly right. I mean, if everybody was only willing to pay comps, prices would never, ever change. So it doesn't make sense. The, the, the fact that so many of us are always, and I mean, we all, I won't say we all, I do it. I see others doing it. You're at a card show. You're looking at a card. You see the, the vendor's price, say $2,000. You pull up your phone. You find some comps, whatever you're using to find those comps. And you realize that the last couple sold for maybe fifteen and sixteen hundred dollars. Now you have to decide: Are you going to say to the vendor, "Hey, you know, I, I see you're asking two thousand. Would you take fifteen, sixteen? Here's what I'm seeing, you know, digitally. Here's what I'm seeing for comps. You know, you're, you're going to risk maybe offending that person, and they're going to say, "Well, maybe make me an offer, what it might be." But yeah, jump in. But one more thing on comps. I think comps are actually great at the same time because they make it much more comfortable for people to jump in and, and spend money. So if they know that this sold for approximately $1,500 to $1,600 and the dealer's selling it for $2,000, they at least can make an informed decision about do I think it's worth that much more or do I care that much more? I think particularly for people that are new to the hobby, without comps, how am I supposed to know if this card is a $100 card, a $10 card, or a $10,000 card? And just because I see a dealer's price, it's very hard to know. So I think that comps are not the end-all and be-all, but they I actually think they create more liquidity and more transactions in the hobby because at least you can see, huh, somebody in whatever time period, whether it's 30 days or 30 years has spent this much money on this card. And I think that that, you know, the adoption of card ladder and market movers and all of those tools actually helps people come into the hobby who might not be willing or might not know what to do because it gives them at least a baseline for thinking about how do I value this? 
I mean, I agree. I agree completely. It's all information that is out there. It's at our fingertips and it's something to consider when deciding how much you're willing to pay for something. But we have to keep in mind when we are using these comps and bringing them into our decision making process, it's important to understand that, you know, if you're relying on eBay as an example, you have to understand that not everybody shops on eBay. So that is only reflective of that specific community. Sure, it's the biggest, but it's not going to be everybody out there. I think I think that's an important, uh, it's just something important to consider that when you're looking at a list of prior sales, you'll notice that they're all over the place for the most part. You know, they're not always going to be within $10 of each other. When you're talking about cards worth around $500 and there's, you know, a, it's a very liquid card. Maybe there's a couple selling every day. I find for me, Catherine, that comps, recent sales values are more important for the cards that trade more and more often. But a card, right? If a card doesn't trade very often, uh, it's just hard to know what it's worth. So it's going to be tough. And then it comes down to how long have you been hunting for it? You'll, you know, who's the player? And you may have a better idea of how much you're willing to spend. And and then almost just disregarding comps. I've disregarded comps myself in the past because I know that the card is really hard to find and I want it badly. And I'm going to set an all time record when I buy it because you don't have the chance. You have to in order to acquire certain cards at certain times. I don't think, a, 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 you know, the extreme example, the T206 Honus Wagner has never sold for less than the prior copy. So that they're always just going up. That's a, an extreme and a rare case. But uh, but it's the reality. Let's keep on going. Let's keep on. Nick Martelli said, storytelling is awesome. I've sold, I've told some about my cards and then other collectors are trying to buy or trade for said cards on the spot. It can make a real difference. I think that's, I think that's a really cool and true story. Uh, Ayana says, what do you think of Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki? I like both those players on the Montreal Canadiens, Ayanis. Uh, Darren says, speaking of Sports Illustrated, I found the 715 Hank Aaron issue in a magazine stand at my parents' house. Definitely not pristine condition, but that is definitely very cool. And speaking of comps, just because a card sold for a price doesn't mean you need to sell it at that price. Comps are not always the actual price for cards. Or I'd say they're not always the actual value for cards because that's moving around. The person who paid that last price is potentially out of the market now. So does that mean that the next price should be less? Because one person has their copy, doesn't need it anymore. Demands come down. Maybe there's an argument for that. Tough to say. Tough to say. Uh, Darren says, maybe World Cup will push a, a more international footprint on cards. A Messi and Mbappe final would be huge. Definitely. Nick Martelli says, people are also holding sellers to comps like it is the law in the hobby as well. People do that. And I don't think it's the best way to uh, to, to go about it for sure. Uh, let's see what else do we got here. Sale prod is here. Nick says, I think so many people have forgotten or refused to negotiate within reason. After all, that is the hobby at its core. You're welcome to uh, Ecuador. Thank you for, for jumping into the show tonight. James says comps are cool. Darren says, I agree. Comps not being the end all be all. If you have a pretty good idea of the trajectory of that card player, I'd hold out for more. Shouldn't be beholden to logging comps. Definitely agree. Chris says the hobby defuse log defies logic. Also, when you have guys like Tim Duncan selling at a fraction of hyped new rookies in the NBA, there's two things there. There's like, it's, we're such a, what have you done for me lately? Sort of hobby industry. Um, and at the same time, if people aren't paying for Tim Duncan, that's the, that's just what the reality is. There's not enough people collecting him to make, to, to, to sort of equate 
how good he was and, and his championships and his legacy. Catherine, something to, to jump in with. I mean, I think this all comes down to you have to sort of know why you're in the hobby and why you're collecting. And and I, I love seeing just how vast that set of answers is. Like for some people, it's set collecting and just having every card that you know they have from XYZ season. For others, it's purely flipping and making money. Like others are into prospecting and kind of the gambling side of it. But you know, I think that it's really important that you know why you're doing this. And then whether it's comps, whether it's a specific player, then you can make the decisions that make sense for your your life, right? For your budget, for your goals, for your family. Like, And I think that that's something it can be really easy to get into the middle of shows and be like, oh, I have to have that card or I have to get that. But I do think that if you start with like, why am I in this and why do I care about this? It at least gives you guideposts to answer like many of the questions and and sort of conundrums that come up in collecting. All right, let's keep on moving along. Stale Prod says everyone wants to buy 20% below comps. Next guy says the same thing pretty soon. All cards go to zero. Yeah, I mean, there's there's truth to that. Uh, Danny says comps are Comps are of different importance based upon card. Take any data and make your own decisions. Very good advice right there that I agree with. James says, I disregard comps all the time. And sometimes you have to disregard them in order to make a purchase for more than them and not walk away thinking that you got, that you paid too much or you, you know, you, you kind of got taken. You have to be just be comfortable with what you're paying for whatever it is that you happen to be buying. Uh, Yankees fan says prices paid for comp for cards will go up and down. However, over time, they generally have gone up. If prices go down, most of us can buy more things we want, like Jeremy buying that 53 maze later, later tonight. Very good. Very good. Uh, and uh, let's go to Justin Wickeiser. The emerging market needs education and entertainment about what is scarce, what totally. is historical, what is rare and how market forces will allow the asset to maintain or grow in value or demand. I mean, that's a good point. It comes down to education and and being being, you know, absorbing it. Catherine came into Catherine came into the hobby and absorbed a lot and now can speak as an expert. The more you absorb, the closer you're going to get. Catherine, please So jump. Justin, first off, it's great to see you. I think this is such an important point and I think that lift of learning about what are the different types of cards, what's rare, you know, just even understanding all of the different parallels takes so much time. I remember when I discovered the Peacock parallel and I was like, this was made for me. Um, and I think that anything that we can do as an industry, as a hobby to make this much less overwhelming, I mean, or intense and make it much more approachable and easy to understand. I mean, I'm so grateful for all the people that have spent time with me, explain things to me. I think there's, there's so much that we can do across the entire industry from the manufacturers at the top, the card shops, which are ultimately the hub and the heart of the education and the growth. Um, there's so much incredible content I think, you know, speaking in very like sometimes simple language so that people that are new can can learn about this. I think all of that are really those are all really important steps so that we actually grow the community of people that that care about this. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, 
Okay, I want to go to... Uh, okay, we got some good stuff here. Nick Martelli said, with more tech integration, do we see a more black and white approach to pricing, considering it will create a more a more stocks or bonds-like approach to the hobby? I don't think so, but what do you guys think? I'm going to just start off with this one, Catherine, by saying that, you know, we had Beckett magazines in the 80s and 90s that were basically better than than the, where we are now with tech integration because there was only one source of price data was that magazine. So you go to any any card shop back in the 80s, 90s, that was the price. They, some card shops wouldn't even put up, they wouldn't even put the cards out on their shelf until the next Beckett came out because they didn't know what to price the cards at. That blows my mind to think that, that you know, a, a store owner cannot, needs to wait for a magazine to come out to, t- to decide what to, to sell the cards for. I don't respect those store owners that do that. I shouldn't say I don't respect them. I don't respect that particular approach to, uh, to to pricing out items. Now we have, like Catherine mentioned earlier, we, we've got we've got card ladder, we've got market movers, we've got you, you know completed listings on on the big marketplaces. You can go and check it out. Uh, and it's not. I think it's actually going the opposite direction. That the that that a black and white approach to pricing. I think we're getting further away from that. Is my my opening thoughts on this. Uh, but Catherine, before you jump in, I want to bring up a comment that AIH make that I think we have to really be, th- this is so important that comps can be fake and, you know, oh, they can be fake for many different reasons. But I told the story earlier that, you know, I went back to the cart to the show today to see if I could buy this Martin Brodeur card for around the same price that it just sold for on eBay. The guy wouldn't sell it to me. And I did not leave feeling mad at him. I, I was like, that's totally your prerogative. No problem. But here's the thing. Obviously, I didn't, but I could have gone in and set that comp myself. I could have gone in and bought that card and then said, hey, to or, you know, figured out a way to get that card listed, bought the card and then gone to the guy. Maybe say to somebody, hey, list it, but end it, end it, you know, mon- Tuesday morning at 4 a.m. Eastern. You know, that comps are not all comps are not all uh, equal. They're not all equal. Some marketplaces don't have as big of an audience. Some some auction listings aren't set up properly. Poor poor titles, and some end them at weird times, which can hurt prices as well. Catherine, you were going to jump in. I mean, absolutely, and I think that this is something that, as an industry, we need to we need to be really cognizant of and really careful about because. Let's just take a step back and look at the blow up that's happened, the blow ups that have happened in the crypto industry. I mean, that is next level in terms of fraud and issues that have happened. However, all you need is for some senator's son to get ripped off on some sort of show bid deal or something. And you're going to end up having a hearing about the sports card industry. And I don't think anybody in the hobby wants that to happen. I think what we need to do is by being able to see and start to integrate lots of different sources of data to begin to understand what is realistic, um, grading agencies, other types of authenticity, like authenticators are very important to make sure that the cards themselves are real, then understanding did the transaction actually go through or not? I mean, show bidding is one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges, especially if you're new in the hobby, to understanding 
what is a real comp? So I think this is something that we're going to probably, I think that the big marketplaces are going to have to take more action on it than they're doing today. And I think as an industry, we need to, we need to figure out how to take care of it ourselves. Otherwise there's going to end up being outside forces that will come in and I do, you know, while regulation makes things clear, it then becomes an expensive overhead that I think will take out a lot of smaller players. And I don't think we want to see that happen. So um, I totally agree on the comps can be fake. I think it's something, you know, you've got some great watchdog accounts that are calling out when we are seeing shill bidding or issues that come through. And I think we have to look at it like everyone's afraid about negativity, but we need to be aware when that's happening and kind of clean it up ourselves or else we're going to be in big trouble. That's kind of my, my, my two thoughts, my two cents on it. Yeah. Fair stuff. And, and well said, I think so. Um, okay. Perk here says you have to have your own individual value that you attach to a card that is based on comps and so many other variables. Like you said, I think the comps are a good data point, but they're not the end all be all. Nick Martelli says, love those magazines. So much info. Yes. The, the uh the beckett beckett magazines from the 80s and 90s were uh i mean i used to wait for them every month i wanted to see those up arrows and down arrows as i was you know first realizing that some of these cars i'd had as a kid had actual monetary value and that was a an eye-opening moment uh for sure for me nick martelli said that that's what happens when hype and flippers try to buy quick and make more money in order for them to make money there has to be a willing payer of the money someone has to be willing to spend that money and i think i think a lot of people who were maybe buying cards in you know 20 end of 2020 through 2021 learned from a lot of mistakes that they made not to buy into the hype or get caught not to get caught up in the hype and to actually understand the difference between what i call a commodity card you know your basic uh prisms prism silvers young guns and hockey you know your <laughs> basic uh Every man's rookie card of, of whoever player it is. So uh, point taken there, Nick Martelli. Uh, Darren says, so many variations and cards, sorry, so many variations of cards and factors these days for pricing to be black and white. Yeah, there is a lot of that. It's just a lot to keep track of these days. And Chris C says, there's a reason that influencer and influenza sound alike. The hobby needs more honesty over hype. Yeah, I mean, I'll never... You can never uh, really disagree with that final, that, that la the last half of that comment. We are always going to want more honesty over hype in this hobby. Uh, Perk says, if you make your comp argument when buying or selling a card and the other party doesn't give those comps the same way you do, that needs to be respected more than I believe it currently is. Well said. I think this is this this kind of ties together everything we've been saying about comps is that they're not all they're not all the gospel as to what a card is worth. Even Justin Wickeiser agrees that was well said. John Wee says comps are just good contextual references. Some same thing happens in, in the real estate market. Yeah, I, I've meant to bring in the real estate market and John is exactly right with that for sure. Tough Stuff was the magazine, the go-to magazine of the 90s, says Junk Wax George. I used to collect the Tough Stuff magazines. I thought they were a lot of fun for sure. They had great covers and they, uh, especially when they shrunk it, I, the big one was awesome. Or maybe it was Tough Stuff Junior that came out. Do you remember Tough Stuff Junior? I had a few 
Is that, are you familiar with tough stuff? Does that ring a bell to you, Catherine? Have you heard of tough stuff? I do remember tough stuff. I never, I think that was one that I wanted and my parents were like, yeah, no, let's just sports illustrate for kids is good for now. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right on. Uh, Perk says Beckett was for sure the market Bible on the playground. This card is worth $6 in mint condition. It's going up or down, but really it already went up or down. Well, another great point from Perk tonight. Those arrows reflected the past, not the future. But I remember being one of these people that thought it's it's going up, it's going up. So, you know, you wanted to buy more, but it already went up. You might have been too late at the time. That's still something that's going on now for sure. Darren says, heck yes, the plus and minuses were awesome in the price guide. Well, the pluses <laughs> anyway, you felt like you hit the, you felt like you hit the lottery if you got a plus. Those those little black triangle up arrows. Exactly. Danny says, everyone's here tonight. Yeah, seeing a lot of people here tonight. So I want to thank everyone for joining and welcome to the show. And of course, uh, Catherine's a, a great attraction. So good to have you here. Reverd says, so many variables. One uncertainty to how buyers view a, my card. I just, I don't know what Hoder is. I don't know what Hoder is. Sorry, uh, Reverd. Perk says, tough stuff was what you used when there wasn't a bucket available. All right, Catherine. So coming back to Magpie now. You explained what Magpie is. What I want to know is the hobby has been changing so much over the last three, four years. You know, never mind card values, just the proliferation of content, the proliferate, the the up the the uprising of Instagram and the and t- card Twitter is the Twitter card community calls it, and so many more YouTubers now than there were three years ago. It's changing. I feel like. Companies in the space that are going to be successful need to change. They need to adapt. They need to pivot. They need to be aware of what, you know, what's going on and not just rest on what worked in the 90s or the 2000s. With Magpie, are you sort of, have you experienced with Magpie that even since you started the company a couple of years ago, have you had to pivot already based on how quickly the hobby has changed over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I would say we've evolved. I think we started focused on the collectors like my dad and the white glove service to help them understand what they have. And I think we realized what an opportunity there was to begin to build the integrations across all of these fragmented data sources, which you just highlighted, right? Like anyone who's trying to keep track of what a price is, is looking at probably three different websites. They're also looking at Facebook groups. They're trying to probably checking gem rate to see what the population report is. You know, there's just so many different pieces. And I think we started to realize that as much as there are um, lots of solutions that are needed for collectors, there's a lot of fundamental infrastructure that needs to be built so that those solutions can work efficiently. Um, And that working with the dealers and the particularly the multi-location retailers was one of the best ways to get um, access to to data that doesn't exist anywhere else to help connect to collectors. So I think it's just really been listening to the challenges that people have, what they love, what they hate. And let's be honest, this is a very opinionated um, industry. Everyone. Come on. on. What are you talking about? Um, I love it. No, but like no two people have the same way that they price something. No two people have the same grails. Yes. Everybody wants, you know, a Mickey Mantle or a Michael Jordan, but you know, there is just so much diversity. And so being able to pull out the threads that 
are consistent across the board um, to really realize what direction the market is going. And then also to watch what's happening in the larger worlds, right? I mean, people are really passionate about sports. They're passionate. They've been interested in the crypto world and NFTs, even if we're on like quite a downward spiral there at the moment. There's just a lot of energy and figuring out how do you pull those threads and make that really just easy and accessible for for people in the hobby. And that's that's how Magpie has continued to to grow. Cool. You mentioned earlier that you know you're working with LCSs, card shops. You you go to LCSs because you you mentioned Bleaker earlier. I wanted to ask you this is and this is pulling off as something that I there's a you know a current topic in the hobby that that came about because a certain in uh, I guess I'll call the account an influencer said that all all local card shops should go away something to that effect. There's no need for them anymore. They're the, the gist of the statement was, we don't need card shops anymore. Um, uh, you mentioned to me the other day something about card uh, card shops. So when you hear a comment like that, what do you think? Are, are, car, are, are card shops important to our hobby? A hundred percent. So I think card shops um, are critical because they... Um, they are like the physical community on a day-to-day basis in a specific geography. So, um, and not only, so they provide number one, a gathering place, number two, education, number three, product. Like that's the best, easiest, fastest way to get product is to ride your bike or drive your car over to the card shop. And then finally, um, from a business perspective, they provide tremendous liquidity to collectors, right? They are not only selling cards, but they're also buying them. They see what collectors are interested in. And I think it'll be really interesting to see um, how Tops, Panini, Fanatics, all of these guys try to work more closely with the local card shops to really understand what they, um, you know, what their local audiences are. And I think one of the things I'm really excited about with the fanatics like licensing deals is that there's now an incentive for the players to connect with their hometown LCSs and card shops. So I think that card shops, um, particularly the ones that are focused on education and on growing their communities will continue to have an incredibly important role in this ecosystem. I think if you, um, I think they really educate and bring along the next generation. I think every card shop you walk into, you see parents with their kids and that's, that's critical because otherwise we're going to end up kind of in the place where stamps have ended up, where it's sort of dying out because the expertise and the experience just isn't there in the same way. So I think that um, when people say things like that, they, they either have an agenda Um, which, you know, you should always think about when you're listening to people, what's their agenda? Um, Or there, you know, there is obviously, like, let's just take a step out of the hobby. When you look at all sorts of other direct-to-consumer businesses, from like glasses with Warby Parker to mattresses, all those companies that drove this whole D2C business, they've all set up stores. Even the Real Real, which is like, has its store, despite the fact that it's supposed to be a totally digital marketplace. So 
Well, it's there. And a uh, couple couple things that come to mind for me. I watched uh, Rob Varis from Burbank speak to this on one of his morning uh, morning Instagrams, uh, I think responding to the same topic. He also said that card shops are billboards because they often have very nice, colorful uh, front glass or signage that you know have the big logos on them. So there's that as well. The other thing that I haven't heard anyone say lately, but you sort of said it, I have, this happens to me all the time. My kids are young. They go to school. My, you know, my wife will tell me, Hey, you know, this kid in our daughter's classes, mother wants to buy a present for their nephew. And they want to buy a, a Wayne Gretzky card or a Michael Jordan card. What, 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 you know, and they, they think I'm going to have it ready to go just that I can, it's like, I don't have anything for them at that price point. I say, go to Eastridge. It's right over there. You know, Go to Eastridge Hobbies, buy, buy something there. Michael fix you up. Michael take care of you. That that sort of thing. If you don't have that, then that kid's not going to get the present that they want. If that kid has a, an LCS in their general geographic area. So, you know, we talk about so often, we we being the hobby, talk about we need kids involved. We want kids. We want this hobby to, to move forward into the future, several decades, generations. Well, if we can't, if a kid who's, you know, eight or nine or 10 or 12 years old can't get a simple five, 10, 20, $50 card of their favorite local player locally. That's, that's not a good position for the hobby to be in moving forward. So, you know, not every, not every parent knows how to use online shopping, right? I mean, LCS is a lot of people still like regular retail. So I think it's really important for those reasons. Please, Catherine, jump back in. I think there's one other thing is that I've seen um, a number of situations where kids' interest in cards has actually pulled their parents back mm -hmm. into it. And so I think that when um, Justin made a point about experiences, and I think that that is critical. I think LCSs that are um, just getting allocation and flipping them, you know, out on, you know, different platforms, I think they are going to have a much harder time existing because I think that the hobby shop really, by creating an ex, like, a, almost a community center, a place of education, connection to sport, connection to other people in the area, those are going to do well and will have actually a much bigger role, particularly as like this becomes an, it's almost a new social center to a certain extent. I mean, I've had a chance to spend a lot of time in Lexington, Kentucky at Kentucky Roadshow. They have a museum. They have players there every week. You walk in, there are games to play. I mean, I could spend all day there. And you watch the kids show up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they're there for hours. Um, and I think that that, not just for the next generation, but for the space as a whole, is really important. Isn't it kind of like these LCSs, a lot of them, like I've been to shops where you go in, the, the proprietor, the manager, the owner wants you to get in and out. They don't want you to stick around. I think that's such such a, just like such a bad for business approach. Now you're seeing car shops open up that have a card bar or tables and chairs or, or couches, beverages, you know, all sorts of things. Like, is it, I, I feel like most people here have seen the TV show Cheers, you know, you walk in where everybody knows your name. You can be, you can be Norm. You can be, you know, whoever, Sam, whoever, Woody. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting a bunch of the other, and unfortunately, Kirstie Alley just passed away the other day. But, yeah. um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on 
card shops being a place like Cheers. Totally. Well, we talked the other day. I often liken them to like Central Perk and Friends as like a place where, you know, I think that that is that that becomes a big part of how you grow the audience, how you grow the industry. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think we're I think we're seeing that in the best stores. They are collecting data about their customers so they know what the customers like. They're putting together programming and content and education. They know what cards to buy, what cards to sell. Um, they can start to get much more personalized with recommendations, with promotions. And I think that that helps everyone, frankly. But you need, just to, to one step, step on that, you need a base level of like organization and understanding of your inventory, of your customer base, of your geography um, that I think ha has not traditionally been there for a lot of kind of old school LCSs. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to some comments. Lots of good stuff here. Uh, Revert, I'm going to go back to this one first as... Uh, told me what Hoder is. Thank you for, I, I, I did. I'm one of the very few people in the world who has not watched Game of Thrones. I watched the first one and a half episodes and couldn't, couldn't keep going. I know that's going to surprise a lot of people. I might have to just try it again in the future. It uh, goes on to say human interaction, who needs it? I do think this was a, a sarcastic comment. Um, Danny Black, uh, happy National Hobby Day. Stopped at the LCS for support. Very nice. Mark Santucci says car shops are 1000% important. Like Catherine said, it's a place to do some talking. Justin Wickeiser says shops need to create more experiences. They are critical to this space. I put that up before you mentioned it. Last week's guest on the show, um, uh, Ken, Ken Richardson from uh, Pastime. He's, we talked a ton about what he's doing about creating experiences in the card shop. So not everybody is not doing that. Several are, and those would be the ones who will last very long. James Wynn said once now he says, once you get ripped off at a shop, you'll never want to go back though. So I think what I, what I like about this comment is that, well, it's sort of true. What I don't like is how it implies that you're going to, by saying once you get ripped off, meaning you're going to get ripped off. I don't think you're going to get ripped off, you know, for sure. There are some great, honest, integral shop owners out there. It's uh, like more now, maybe than ever. I don't know. Uh, Justin Wickage just says, buying on PWCC and Golden is not an entry point into the hobby. An LCS is. It's a good point. Uh, Reverd says, sounds like anyone entertaining the idea of card slash hobby shops going out of business is either dumb or has an agenda. I think it's just dumb in this case. I think it's just uh, lack of experience, lack of, 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 of worldly uh, experience. That, that, that's what I, what I think on that. And Go I ahead, think Catherine. just on that point, I think I know at Industry Summit, there was a lot of anxiety about what changes is Fanatics going to make to allocations to a variety of different things. But um, and there will be changes. They, you know, not everyone is necessarily going to be 100 percent winner with changes that come down the line. But I do hear from their leadership, like an understanding of the need for hobby shops to to be that local driver of education, of experience, of liquidity for the hobby. And I think if you look at their recent Topps Chrome promotion, that shows that they get it and that they are helping get people back in the hobby shops. So I think that's promising um, from my perspective. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Revered here says, the only reason I'm here, my son is into Pokemon, 
and I got bored during COVID. Now I'm deep diving on a Saturday evening. I mean, that's, I hear these stories all the time. Like I'm one of these people in my community where people tend to know that I'm into cards and whenever they see me, they want to talk to me and tell me about, you know, their, their 9091 pro set cards. Like, you know, and I have to pretend like I'm interested in their 9091 pro set or, you know, the junk wax stuff. But I, you know, it's still fun to hear people who were, who remember those, that's their nostalgia. And a lot of them are coming back and getting back into it because it is such a cool hobby. I mean, we know that, but it's sometimes we have to convince others or, or we don't just show them how cool cards are. But yeah, I it, revert is not alone in, in that comment. Uh, here's a question for you, Catherine, about, about Magpie. Justin says, can cards on another platform such as card ladder or vintage card prices be transferred to your platform without manually entering them again? Not everyone can go white glove, but it sounds awesome. Yeah, so there's one really easy way to do it. You can download a CSV of your collection from some of those platforms and you can upload it to ours. We're trying to build direct integrations with as many different players in the hobby as possible. Um, I saw John Wee on here, like Center Stage is a great app. I think there's, you know, we talk a lot about different ways to partner. So that is certainly the vision that you'll be able to pull data um, regardless of where it is on different platforms so that you can really make the most of um, the sources that you find most valuable. All right. Well said. Okay. Let's see. So we are, uh, we're, we're, we're getting into this episode here. Uh, lots, lots of great, lots of great engagement from the chat and uh, everyone who's here. Thanks for, thanks for joining and um, you mentioned center stage. I just pulled them up on the ticker because they are a supporter of Sports Cards Live. So you can follow them at Center Stage HQ or download their app in the App Store. They're also in the uh, Android. I don't know if it's called an App Store. What's it called on Android? Is it called an App Store? Well, they're also on Android as well. So let's let's switch it up now, Catherine. I want to talk a bit, and this might be our last topic of the night. So to the chat and everybody, feel free to keep on pumping us with questions and comments. We'll get to as many as we can, but we're going to change the topic now to the big move that you made really for going from big corporate, you were talking about IBM and all that, into a startup and the lifestyle change and that sort of thing. Um, do you want to, do you want to talk to that? Before we do that, there's a, we have to bring up this question from Nick just about uh, about Magpie quickly here. Sorry, everybody, but is Magpie available to Canadian collectors? I do feel in some cases Canadians get the short end of the stick sometimes. Um, is it available to Canadians? Yes, 100%. It's available worldwide. Okay, great. Let's move on. Your, li your life itself, like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that, you know, you, you, you were in big corporate, you enjoyed it, but you wanted to do something yourself, build your own team, run a company the way you want it to be ran. You know, just speak to, speak to the fact that you jumped from what is, was probably a much more secure income stream, uh, into something that is more risky. Startups are risky, uh, Talk about that. Talk about your de your decision to make this lifestyle change. Um, yeah, although I want to hear, I'm happy to answer, but I'm also excited to hear how you think about this, given some of the changes that you've gone through this year. Um, yeah, so um, there's a Mary Oliver poem that says, "What what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And I think that 
Um, anyone who has lived through the last three years in this world with the pandemic, with just so many different things that have happened, hopefully has asked themselves this question. And I was probably asking myself this question a little bit earlier. And I think there are so many different ways to, to look at it, but I will just focus on team. Um, I have been so incredibly lucky to bring on some very, very talented people to help us with building technology, with connecting with customers, with serving customers, um, people that have experience running memorabilia at the Mets who've been Silicon Valley veterans, um, building technology platforms for companies like PayPal and others. And I had two um, health issues in 2022 where I had to step away from the business for a couple of weeks. And it was incredible to watch my team just continue to push things forward, to grow the business, to build our product. You know, as the product owner, as the business owner, it's never fast enough. I always want more, but they have an incredible um, love of the hobby, like joy in building something new and exciting, um, curiosity about how do we actually make this work for, um, for our customers. And I think that that, um, that makes it so, you know, makes it incredibly worthwhile when I'm hopping on a plane to the other side of the country yet again, or I'm on a red eye home, or I'm trying to figure out, can I spend the money on doing this or going to that show? Just seeing what we've been able to build and that kind of culture and community inside Magpie um, is is awesome. And it's just really rewarding. And I think you have to have a certain level of risk tolerance. I think I was fortunate while I worked at IBM to build a cushion to be able to take more risk than, you know, I might have earlier in my career. Um, and then there's just also an element of luck. I've had a lot of great people that have taken the time to get to know me, to answer my questions, to give me a shot. Um, and that's, that's awesome. I mean, we are we are a male-dominated hobby, even though there are so many more women in it. I'm even wearing my Women of the Hobby shirt today. Uh, if anyone's wondering what, what WAF, my, I remember my mom says, my mom asked me, I was wearing the shirt the other day, what does WAF mean? I said, mom, it's Women of the Hobby, you know? Um, whoa, wait, okay, now where, where was I going with that? Um, I want to, okay, so... I forgot where I was going with that, Catherine. Darn it. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go to comments for a sec. If someone if you if I left any breadcrumbs there, remind me. Um, but Kay says here collecting concert posters is where the money's at. And that's uh there's definitely something to that. I know there's a big, a very uh a very loyal and, and, and committed collect uh collector base for concert posters. You know, as a collector, especially in ephemera, we are we are like I understand that. I understand collecting concert posters or movie posters or anything made of paper for that matter. Uh, card porn says here, uh, great. Thank you for the great work comment. Can highly recommend Catherine's white glove service. She did a great job under tough circumstances on a much loved and valuable collection. Uh, so very cool. Nice endorsement there for what you're thank doing. You. Catherine. Chris C said, love the show. Thank you both for the great chat about everything in the hobby and your experiences. Well, thank you, Chris, for being here uh, again. 
Um, you know, I think when you are making a switch like you made from big corporate to a startup, there's a few things that, that come into play. Uh, one is it can be exhilarating. And you mentioned, you know, I've made some changes in my life too. And during 2022, excuse me, left my 25-year CPA career and went to work for Tag Grading, a, a startup, a, a, a more mature startup, 10 years in the making, but still a startup in the, in the hobby. And, you know, it comes down to like, it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating to work in a company where you actually believe in what, what it is. You're not, you're not just pushing numbers or selling something you don't care about. You're actually, uh, it's exhilarating. And I feel like you have that, that level, level of exhilaration in your day-to-day life right now. You mentioned your team. If you're going to, if you're going to leave a real secure job to go into a startup or to start something as an entrepreneur, you need to build a team that you're going to want to spend time with because you all know what it's like when to work for an employer where you're one of you know dozens, hundreds, or thousands of employees. You're not going to get along with anybody. So when you are the when you are the entrepreneur, you can build the team that you really like and and then and then implement a culture that you believe is going to work for that company. And I know that that's something that you you speak about, you've done, you've built the team you like, you've got the culture. And then finally, to me, if you're like with, with, with my particular move, joining tag grading, it comes down to the integrity of the leadership in the company itself. And if you can build a team of people that have integrity, as I'm sure you're doing, again, you're, you're going to just enjoy your, your role to the point where does it even feel like work or does it feel like you're chasing a dream? I think there's, I think there, you know, and with, with passion and exhilaration, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot of talking here, but jump in and let me know, does that all resonate with you? Is there anything you'd add or take away? I mean, a hundred percent. I think, look, there are some days when it really feels like work and it's really hard and it's painful and you don't have control over things. And there's no IT guy in the way that there was when you were a big corporate. And suddenly I'm the IT guy who has to figure out why the website isn't loading or why didn't this payment go through or how do I, you know, get so-and-so at big corporate to come talk to me and believe that I'm actually someone that they need to partner with. But to your point about when you have passion for the industry that you're in, the product that you're building, the team that you're surrounded by, um, it, it helps smooth through all of those ups and downs. And the highs are really high and the lows are really low. Um, but that is, that's part of the game. And I think the, the word acceleration that you used is perfect. Without the low, you don't know what the high is. I read a quote today, probably on Instagram. You know, if you haven't had a bad apple, you don't know what a good apple tastes like. And it's the same thing, right? The Having the lows make the highs so much better, so much more rewarding. Uh, Mark Santucci brings me back as I was talking uh, more about more women in the hobby. Thanks for that, Mark. I still forget where I was going with that. So I'll keep on going. But uh, uh, Lapper, welcome to the show, Aaron. Good to see you. Check out Lapper's eBay uh, sorry, YouTube channel. Uh, Junk Wax Jordan says, great show. Much insights and respect. Thank you, Junk Wax. Revert says, believing in something makes life easy. Purpose, baby. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> great addition to the chat tonight. Revered, if I'm saying that right. Lows make highs so good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Catherine, 
I feel like we're good. We're an hour 51 into this episode. <laughs> it literally feels like we've been here for 10 minutes, maybe 20. Um, you, you said to me the other day, you said, I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be a good time. I feel, I feel like we delivered. What about you? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. What a great way to spend a Saturday night. So thank you. Yeah, you bet. You bet. All right. So we're going to, we're going to start the wrap up everybody. I'm going to read a couple more comments from you guys. And then, uh, we are going to wrap up. I'm going to put on the ticker right now, upcoming shows on the channel. We've got about four or five more before. I think the last one is going to be December 20th. And then I am not, I'm going to be off the, off the airways for a couple of weeks, uh, going away on a vacation. And then, you know, the Saturday is January 1st. I'm not sure I'll do an episode that night, but January 7th, we will be back for sure. That's a Saturday. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Nick Martelli says, I think more stories of people like Catherine or others that have started companies that are part of the hobby really make it a full circle moment for the people of the hobby. It's a nice comment. Thank you, Nick Martelli. Uh, Junk Wax Jordan says, believe, believing just got me past 15,087 to 2,000 Jordan. Yes, there are multiples. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt about it. All right, Catherine, listen, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your, your, your experience, your knowledge, your enthusiasm for the hobby, for this space. You're a great addition to that. I've, I've known that for a full year now. And I just want to thank you for coming on the show and uh, sharing everything that you did. So I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun to chat with you and the whole community that's joined for this conversation. It's been fantastic um, and look forward to doing it again before too long. Awesome. Well, thank you again, everybody. As you know, we'll be back. We'll be back again uh, in the future. Uh, upcoming episodes on the ticker right now. I'm going to read final comments and then we're going to end this episode. Revert says, I got to go watch the first half. Enjoyed what I consumed live. Thankful for anyone putting honest content. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Darren, thank you so much to you. The chat was great tonight. And Chrissy says, collecting is a passion. Yes, it is. And I think that is the perfect comment to end on. Thank you, Revert. Thank you, Nick Martelli. Everybody, this episode is now over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.